You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello and welcome to the McKinsey Podcast with me, Simon London. The future, they say, is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Well, this pretty much sums up the current state of manufacturing. Some factories are indeed moving at pace into the future. They're combining automation, artificial intelligence, the Internet of Things, and more to change fundamentally how they operate. And yet, the majority of manufacturers are indeed struggling to deploy these technologies at scale. To understand why, I sat down in New Jersey with McKinsey partners Katie George and Enno de Boer. Enno and Katie are fresh from a joint research effort with the World Economic Forum to track down and understand these so-called lighthouse manufacturers, beacons of best practice in the emerging fourth industrial revolution. So Katie and Enno, thanks for being here. Welcome to the podcast. Very happy to be here. Excellent to be here. Thanks for having us. Eno, you've just come back from a little bit of a world tour uh, looking at some of these manufacturing plants. You know, when I think about the future of manufacturing, I am imagining big greenfield operations, lots of robots, not many people. Is that broadly what you find? Actually, it's the opposite. We see that in this industrial revolution, you really kind of can build on the existing equipment you have. It's mainly brownfield situations. And look at one of our lighthouses uh, from Procter & Gamble in Rancona. That's a site that's there since 1875. So not greenfield at all. That's about as brownfield as you can get. Well, you can do a greenfield and you can use the technology in greenfield, but it's very much applicable to brownfield. Censoring has become so affordable that you can censor out all the factories with the existing equipment and, and then put the data to work. What I think is very exciting is um, not only can you think about uh, utilizing uh, existing assets in a new way, but that goes for the workforce as well. How can we utilize an existing workforce and really upskill them or reskill them to be successful in the new technologies? And um, as Enno said, what we're seeing around the world is that some of the most advanced Industry 4.0 plants not only are using brownfield assets, but they're using their same workforce, but the people are learning new skills and uh, working in a new way. Okay, so my, my preconceptions have been thoroughly shattered here. We're not talking about big greenfield robotic operations here. So when you do go into these plants, what are the technologies in play? Let me start with the best known example, predictive maintenance. That's kind of one use case. And there you already see how many technologies come together to innovate the way how we do maintenance in the future. And the future is now. So first of all, you have sensors on machines. They create signals and IoT connects those into a data lake. Now, machine algorithms, uh, machine learning algorithms help to dig through all kind of the data and make uh, digest it and make meaning out of this. So this is kind of the intelligence part. Now we're putting automation in place, and this automation is, is kind of literally scheduling the maintenance job. And it's ordering kind of all the spare parts that the maintenance engineer needs to do that job. Now the maintenance engineer arrives at the site and it looks, um, it has an AR um, headset 
gets kind of instructions on how to fulfill the maintenance job. So it needs not a lot of training to do the job. And if there's something highly complicated, he can call or she can call, video call an expert on a shoulder to that job and it gets fulfilled. So, so you see, maintenance is done totally different than before. So maintenance, predictive maintenance, it's a single use case, but it's bringing together all of these different technologies into quite radically different processes to reach these step changes in uh, performance improvement. Correct. To give you another example, digital performance management is also a, a highly used and a highly impactful use case. We all know the dashboards in manufacturing sites. You walk into a site and today, all of those sites have dashboards, you see some KPIs lighting up, etc. That's not digital performance management. What digital performance management is, these dashboards get fed by sensors, by accurate real-time data. We're not talking in a management meeting anymore whether this data is true because there's one source of truth. It's in there, it's correct, and it's real-time. It's right after the shift so we can problem-solve immediately. Now we want to drill down and understand something. On a fingertip, we can drill down into the data, make meaning out of that, and solve a problem which would have taken us in the past maybe two weeks to wait until someone is coming back with an answer. We can do it right away. And with that kind of, we have a total new level of performance of all of our management. Another good example is the use of digital standard operating procedures or digital SOPs. Uh, which I think is a very exciting one because it basically moves from all of these horrible old notebooks that many plants used to have, which would list all of the different uh, procedures and people would be trained on it. I have uh, plants where people are trained on hundreds of these procedures, and of course they don't remember all of them, to actually SOPs that are on a screen that they can see real time. It's a bit like moving from using a map to using a GPS system. As you look at the SOPs real time, if a change happens in the condition that you find of a piece of equipment, they can change real time to reflect the new operating procedures that are required relative to that new condition or to the new task. It's very exciting because, first of all, of course it improves people's productivity, but also dramatic improvements in the quality. In many cases, uh, plants will find that human error is one of the most important sources of variability, of deviation, of productivity loss, of any kind of uh, error in the site. And so this eliminates human error because it tells people exactly what they can do. It also dramatically improves the time it takes to get people up to standard performance on a new task. Yes, it's like, to use the map analogy again, yeah. you're much less likely to get lost That's right. if you've got GPS. That's right. Let me give you one example on that. So imagine for commercial aeroplanes, you do the wiring. Now to do the wiring, it's a highly complex task. So the work instructions, they are captured in telephone book work instruction books. These days, we see that operators, they get virtual reality and they get these instructions as they go and as they are doing that. The result is they don't do any errors anymore uh, and they are much more productive and they really like it because they don't need to do this cumbersome work of looking through the instruction, then doing something back and forth. Many of our clients have 
rolled out single technologies around specific kind of point use cases, um, often because they want to pilot and really show the benefit of those single use cases. These Lighthouse sites have put together many different use cases. There's not one recipe for which combination they should be, but they put together many, and they're piloting many more. And that combination creates a scale effect that really transforms the performance of the site, the culture of the site. That's actually in the research, isn't it? That yes. There seems to be a sort of optimum number of uh, use cases to pursue, and it is a portfolio approach. Yeah, so we see literally something around 20 to 30 use cases apply to one site, create kind of really a transformational value that you want to look at. Bayer in uh, Italy, they were able to increase their productivity by 40%. The Bosch Wuxi side in China, they were already operating at 94% OEE, and they were able to squeeze out another 6% of output and capacity without doing capital investments. So really step change performance changes. And I think what's important about that, if I can just add, is these are not plants that started as laggards and just used digital and automation to kind of catch up. What we're seeing is some of the very best plants across sectors finding that they can go beyond what they were already excellent at in terms of lean manufacturing capabilities, et cetera, build on those and by using these new technologies, take their performance to a whole new level. And the performance improvement is not just along kind of one dimension. It's not just that productivity improves. It's that productivity and quality improve. Productivity and flexibility or agility improve. What we're seeing uh, in both the Lighthouse sites, but more broadly in our research, is that this is a winner-takes-all kind of environment. A lot of our clients are asking us, isn't it okay just to be a fast follower? You know, there's such uncertainty in the technology. And actually the answer is probably not. The front runners really get the spoils financially and the ones who have followed are uh, really struggle to get to the same economic benefit. And do we know why that is? It's because they have repositioned themselves competitively in such a significant way, both in terms of cost structure, but also in terms of customer experience, flexibility to new demand patterns and things like that. Let me give you an example. So in terms of innovation, for example, UPS together with Fast Radius, they changed entirely the game on spare part management. So now they are not putting the spare parts for years into the shelves, but they do 3D printers into their warehouse locations and send on demand the spare parts out. So that's changing entirely the game. If you have figured that out at scale, it's very hard to follow. How do you prevent, as a management team, the arrival of these technologies making people feel more like a, a cog in an automated machine, where they're just they're getting instructions and they're fulfilling things, but they're under constant supervision, measuring them against the benchmarks, standard time, standard procedures? In, in a sense, this is a, a really nice progression of what we've seen in manufacturing over the last 50 years. If you go back to the assembly line, that was really the worst in terms of being given a very specific task, being part of a big machine, and just doing that task repetitively and not being asked to do anything more than that. When you get to the Toyota production system in Lean, it unleashes human creativity and potential. They still have standard work and they still have transactional work, 
but they're also being asked to continually improve those standards along with their teammates. And they have control over the system and that they can pull the end on cord if there is a problem that needs to be fixed. Now we're taking that one more step forward, which is now we're going to eliminate some of that standard, most you know, transactional work and just leave the fun of the Toyota production system in terms of the ongoing continuous improvement, the creativity, et cetera. You know, I think we should face into the fact that what this will mean, at least in some production environments, is less total number of people, right? Because we will automate some of the tasks that people used to do. But for the people who are left, the jobs will be far more interesting because they will be doing work that is more creative, that is more relationship-based and about them connecting to others and making things happen in the total system. And that is just much more value-add and more fun. In the Schneider Electric side, we saw it that operators were able to create their own digital apps that support their work. They're not waiting anymore for cumbersome IT projects that take maybe a year until their problem is solved. And then it's solved in a way that is not kind of really fitting with how they can and want to do the work. So we see a lot of engagement of the operator that get excited because they get literally at hand the tools that they need to do their job in a very good manner. Presumably, this is one of the reasons why companies who frankly are at the cutting edge of manufacturing in the, in the pre-industry 4.0 era could have something of an advantage here because they know actually how to mobilize the workforce, how to engage a workforce, actually how to bring the best out of people, which is part of the game here. There's no question. In fact, um, in some of the roundtables that we've led with manufacturing leaders who've been uh, working on these uh, transformations, you ask, what's your biggest failure mode? And they've said, biggest failure mode is when we try to transform digitally a site that first has not actually mastered lean, because the, not only is the workforce not prepared for this kind of change, but also the processes are not characterized well enough, things are not under enough control to really take full advantage of digital. I would very much agree with Katie. But I would also say, like someone who has not gone through the lean journey, it's not uh, the time to wait because you can leapfrog. I talked about digital performance management. You would not do anymore the standard performance management. You would put this immediately in place. But Katie is totally right. Uh, a good lean foundation helps you to go much faster through your digital transformation than if you need to, as you transform, also put these basics in place. So I think my, my second devil's advocate question, people listening to this may be thinking, you know, are we being too optimistic about the number of jobs that actually will be lost or not gained during this transition? Uh, I know you said that people are very much in evidence in these lighthouse projects, but what's our overall takeaway in, in terms of the overall impact of this on job growth? I think this is another situation where winner takes all is very relevant. So what we're seeing in our lighthouse sites is that they are rapidly improving their capacity and productivity and their use of capacity such that they can grow with the same number of people and the same number of fixed assets, which is super healthy. So what they're seeing is they're taking more share, if you will. And of course, we're in a demand growth economy right now, so they're growing. And when there is an economic downturn someday for them, they'll be in a far better position because they have, as we talked about before, changed, the, you know, changed their break-even point. But for companies and for plants that are laggards, there really is a very serious question about what will happen to them as they try to catch up. Because there is no question that 
you can do more with less people. And that will be one of the impacts of Industry 4.0 revolution across the industry. We're very concerned about the laggards, and that's why we're working with the World Economic Forum together. One mission of this work as a big production community is to, to say, how do we make sure that technology gets diffused? How do we make sure that we have inclusive growth? Because we don't want to see that big displacement. So as Katie said, the laggards, that's kind of what's concerning us most. And it's not only about the laggards um, as companies, but also the laggards in a production network. They will be left behind and there will be displacement. So we want to prepare for that. And in a production network means broadly within a single corporation. Certain plants Correctly. are behind and the question is what happens to them if and when and as there's a downturn. Okay, so we would concede and agree that you know there is an, an impact on the overall number of jobs over time Absolutely. Uh, relative to output. But I think the interesting point is if you look at these advanced plants today, these are not lights out manufacturing. They're, these are not r robot greenfield sites with no people. Yeah, these are not lights out manufacturing. These are places where actually the role of human beings actually is increased, augmented, more interesting, more satisfying. And I'd say a lot of our research um, has looked at what the role of manufacturing is on an economy in general and on the global economy. And even though in the old days, in the 1950s, manufacturing was a very, very important source of jobs, employment, and growth. That's no longer the case, and that hasn't been the case for some time. But what it is really critical to, it has a disproportionate share on productivity growth in an economy. And productivity growth is really important because that's what drives our standard of living. And that's why it's important to have a manufacturing core, not to create the same kind of jobs that we saw in the 1950s, but to drive productivity. Productivity has been stagnant for the last 10 years globally. It's a huge problem. This is one of the ways that we can see jump-starting productivity growth in a way that is very important for each economy. So we've been talking quite a lot about leaders and laggards and winner-takes-all. When you look at uh, the geographic distribution of, of the lighthouses, are certain countries more present than, than others? What's the, the pattern? At the moment, you can't take um, our research as representative in that way. But what we have seen is we had an overproportionate share in China and in Asia, what was uh, at the beginning a little bit surprising. And we have also a big share in, in Europe. We have not so big of a share in the U.S., and that makes me very concerned. That is actually, unfortunately, not surprising because we've been tracking statistics around adoption of robotics and other digital capabilities, and the U.S. is lagging Germany, it's lagging Asia. So the places where the U.S. should have a competitive advantage are places that the U.S. is not actually finding a way to invest in in order to uh, create that advantage. We've mentioned 3D printing additive manufacturing a couple of times in this conversation. How widespread is it? Where is it being adopted? You know, a few years in, what is it good for? 3D printing is very exciting. I think uh, I grew up with 3D printing and prototyping, and it was inherently expensive. If you now look at it, it's penetrating mass markets. So, for example, we see that small parts in smartphones are now 3D printed. How do they do that economically? They print at the same time 100,000 of these parts in batches, and then it's economically viable because these parts are exactly designed in a way and integrating parts um, in a way that was not possible before. Yeah, but 3D printing is not the only technology that's going to enable 
uh, new levels of customization, for example, or new business models. We're talking with, for example, with a clothing manufacturer that's setting up local production for customized clothing. And they're going to be using some of the same technology that already exists in sewing, but taking pattern making and cutting and some of the other elements to a whole new level by creating flexible automation and uh, digital kind of control. So there's, a, I think, a lot of different technologies that will be used in different combinations to achieve some of these benefits. The other technology that we've mentioned a few times without really going into the detail is, is Internet of Things, sensors, yes. broadly speaking. So how important is IoT in this transformation? Very important. IoT is a, if, you, if I take the analogy of, of the human body, it's a nerve system. Yeah, that's IoT. Then you have the sensors. The sensors get connected to the nerve system. Then you have the, the big brain. The big brain is cloud. IoT goes into the cloud. There kind of some intelligence is happening. Then you have the small brain. That's kind of IoT at the edge, artificial intelligence at the edge. So a couple of repetitive things that need to happen in a very distributed way. Then you have the, the arms and legs. That's the automation in the end. So, so that's how it all works together. And I think that's, that's what makes me most excited about this field is all these great technologies come together. And only if we put them in the right way together, we will get the results because they all play a piece of the puzzle. Well, and IoT is exciting in the, in the kind of transformational impact it can have within the organism of a manufacturing site, for example. But it's also when you put IoT into the final product and can get customer usage data from it, uh, it creates incredible feedback loops to how you think about product design, how you think about marketing, how you think about production, and what's most important to consumers. So how do you ruggedize a product for the way it's actually used, et cetera. So uh, I think IoT will be game-changing in many, many industries. So when you're working with clients on these kind of issues, trying to help them navigate this journey to sort of full digital manufacturing, what are some of the, the hurdles that you see? What are some of the sort of failure modes that come up over and again? The, the primary failure mode that we see that exhibits in kind of different ways is something we're calling pilot purgatory, which is that companies launch pilots around new technologies and somehow never get past that to actually scale and get the benefits of scaling. And as we talked about, the benefits of scaling are both about scaling a use case beyond one small line to at least the, the scale of a plant or of a network, but also scaling in the sense of combining multiple use cases together to really create the connectivity and the culture and the innovation, the pace that a lighthouse plant exhibits. There are a lot of reasons why companies never get past pilot purgatory. Uh, one, just very slow decision making, right? That there's just a very slow process for acquiring a new technology, for uh, completing a partnership, et cetera. So they're somehow able to get just a pilot going, but to scale is so slow. Um, another is just a very backward-looking approach to return on investment. So not being able to allocate capital, even small amounts of capital, to scale something that's proven that it's worked because they're always looking for some ROI hurdle that, as we talked about, won't, won't uh, exist until they do scale multiple things together. So those are a couple of reasons why companies, I think, are getting stuck in this pilot purgatory, but it's something we're seeing many, many companies uh, resonate with. So how do you get out of it? Well, first of all, 
I think you really need to figure out what you want to do with digital manufacturing. I get called in a lot and people say like, tell us what is this? And, and I, I ask back, so, so what problem do you want to solve? So first of all, it's about the business problem you need to solve. And really what impact? Katie said earlier, there are several business uh, dimensions and impact dimensions that you can take. You can be more agile, you can be faster to market, you can be more productive, you can mass personalize. So please define what you want to get out of it. I think one of the other failure modes is when companies get very excited about shiny new objects in terms of new technologies and take a technology forward approach as opposed to what I would describe as a business value back approach. So just uh, embracing cool technology for the sake of it and trying to implement as much as possible does not create any real business value. You have to do the hard work of understanding what your competitive advantage is going to be, how do you want to change it or enhance it using digital, and then work backwards to see what are the new capabilities you want to build with digital and advanced analytics capabilities. So don't start with you know augmented reality headsets playing around them, just try to figure out what are we going to do with these? Exactly right, exactly right. And I think we really need to stop with these bottom-up approaches where we kind of tell to our people like, okay, go, go innovate, do a little bit here and there. We see this. And pilot purgatory means pilots all over the network, not coordinated. You need to pull this together. And I think this is a time where really leaders need to lean in. Um, we need top management to lean in and decide which direction they want to take. Otherwise, they will not be able to scale up. And then... If you have the strategy, you need to put some scale-up enablers in place. So you need to put the right IT stack in place. You don't need to do that from the very beginning. So don't be scared that you need to invest a lot. The first use cases will work without and they will be self-funding. So, so you can ease your way into this transformation. But at some point in time, you will need to step back and innovate and modernize your IT stack. You need to put a new people model in place, yeah? You need data and data scientists, yes, but that's not enough. You need translators, you need data engineers, you, you need all sorts of capabilities, and most importantly, you need to upskill your management and your people that they can work with these new capabilities. You need to put a new data model in place and a new analytics model. All of these are scale-up enablers that are needed to go much faster and not incremental use case by use cases, but, but kind of get really the value at um, a very low incremental cost. I'm reminded of a, a business book that was published many, many years ago, see if you remember it, called Crossing the Chasm. Hmm. It was actually about um, tech companies and how they get ah, to scale. Yes. It sounds like there's a similar thing here. There are many companies with a lot of good and interesting pilots, but somehow you got to cross the chasm. And it's like at that point, you probably need serious senior management attention and you need a strategy and you need investment. And at a certain point, somebody just has to decide we're going to cross the chasm. And it's not about anymore about talking. It's not about anymore playing around. I think it's all kind of tested out. We have a lot of proof of concepts out there. We have very viable use cases out there. You don't need to play around anymore with these technologies. Figure out what problem you want to solve, then figure out what are the use cases that are helping you, and then scale them up. Super. Well, Katie and Enno, thank you very much for joining today. It was our pleasure. It was a pleasure. And thanks as always to you, our listeners, for tuning in.
To learn more about our research and work in manufacturing, technology, operations and more, please visit mckinsey.com. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.